0: The experience could end after they finish their last entree or whatever. Or I could sell them five twenty-dollar glasses of dessert wine that they could have while I get you know sell them all desserts and then I sell them all cappuccino. They ask for coffees, but I sell them all like five-dollar americanos instead of two-dollar coffees. You know, and then I've added like hundred twenty dollars onto my onto my check average or onto my check. Yep. When a lot of people servers are just be like, well, okay, can I get you guys anything else?
1: Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. With me today is a chef, an acclaimed food and travel writer who's written for Bon Appetit, the Food Network, the New York Times. He's appeared on the TV show Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. He's also an in-home chef. We're going to talk all about what it takes to... Be an in-house personal chef if you're not a celebrity or a well-known chef. We're going to talk about when he goes out to eat, what does he look for in a restaurant to make that selection? What is he seeing out there in the marketplace in terms of quality and pricing and service? All relevant information that you need in your restaurant, okay? When an objective third party or a food writer shows up, this is what they look for. We're also going to talk about the craziest thing he's ever eaten. And what he likes to eat when he's not working. So stay tuned. This is going to be a fun episode.
0: You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Imagine both your front and back of house teams are so well trained that they're executing flawlessly. Your front of house is doubling your sales, boosting repeat business, and creating five-star dining experiences, while your back of house is consistently preparing each dish to perfection, on time, and to spec. Having a restaurant this dialed takes a unique training system. That's where Serve comes in. Serve means study restaurant variety, and it is a powerful, mobile training system, custom-built to meet the needs of your restaurant. Serve will up-level your team's knowledge and skills maximize your profits and create experiences guests will rave about serve is the key to unlocking your restaurant's hidden potential and will prove that the more your team is able to learn the more your restaurant will earn it's serve and it's a game changer ready to serve get started at
1: ServeNow.com. Not answering your phone is one of the quickest ways for your restaurant to lose a potential customer. But between serving in-person customers and dealing with the kitchen, it's hard for staff to prioritize incoming calls. That's why your restaurant needs pop menu answering. Simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can be handled without pulling a staff person from your in-person hospitality. Reclaim the power of your phone. Pop Menu Answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions most people call in with, like Do you have outdoor seating? or What are your hours? Within the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear, plus, create customized greetings. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, turning every phone call into an opportunity. Plus, Pop Menu's full collection of tools helps optimize your restaurant's website and menu, streamlines your ordering experience, and assists in retargeting to enable you to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. Get help answering your restaurant's calls now with Pop Menu Answering and for a limited time my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com/rockstars go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com/rockstars welcome back everyone this is the restaurant rockstars podcast we're so excited that you're here with me today is mr joe riccio and he is a chef a food and travel writer the host of the food comma pod Coma Food Coma Podcast. Sorry about that. How do get that comma. Food Coma Podcast and so much more. Welcome to the show, Joe. How are you?
0: I am great. You know, Food Coma could work. I mean, it's just a slight hesitation. You know, it's not. A it's not an end. It's just a hesitation.
1: You yeah. got to think about, you know, what you're going to listen to and what and the sounds and the sights and the experiences. So food of course is the universal language. It's a passion in this business. I mean, if you don't have a passion for food and flavors and bringing people together and delivering amazing dining experiences and experiencing amazing dining experiences, you can't consider yourself a food person, but you are clearly that. What? Where did it all begin for you, Joe? Take us back. Tell us, yeah. you know, what were your early influences? How did you start cooking? How did you develop such a passion for food and this business? And everyone's got their own story. What's yours?
0: Yeah, well, mine, I guess, uh, it's funny. It, it, it goes back. I mean, all of my early food memories, the really amazing ones, always revolve around like Sunday at my Italian grandmother's house. Um, you know, spaghetti balls, manicotti, whatever, just that sauce. It was the yeah. kind of thing where it was like, Every place else I go, any like Italian restaurants, it was like never that good. It was like, you know, that was the best. That was sort of the gold standard for me. But other than that, it was funny because like I grew up with pretty much like, you know, shake and bake and like, you know, well, medium well steaks, um, baked haddock, you know, chowder. It was like, I didn't really know what was out there. It was funny. It's like the first time I ever had like a medium rare steak. I was like, oh, I get now why people like steak. You don't have to chew it so many times. You go spit it in the toilet after, you know, it's like, yeah, it was all yeah, these I revelations I started having uh, in my late teens that had kind of opened my eyes to everything. You know, I, I mean, I knew I, I've always been into, you know, a fat kid, so I'm always into eating. Uh, but as far as like refining what I eat, uh, that happened in uh, probably my late teens. And <clears throat> I had actually started out. Uh, with the intention of going, uh, being in the fashion business. Uh, I was working for uh, a high-end clothing store in Portland called Joseph's in high school. And then I worked for Cole Haan uh, back when that was the main company. I worked for them in Freeport. And I thought that I was going to be a buyer for a, you know, for a Saks or a Neiman's or whatever. That was what, that was the scene I kind of got involved in. And so I finished high school. uh, I moved directly to Chicago And I had them transfer me to Michigan Avenue from Freeport. And I had actually gone for like a quarter to the Illinois Institute of art for fashion merchandising. But I was like, I don't like college at all. I don't like classes. I don't like classrooms. I don't have the attention span for that. So awesome. Yeah. I got a daughter like that. Yeah. It's just like, you know, I just start, I just, everything just kind of starts melding together and I just get lost in my own thoughts, you know, but, um, it was really, it was in Chicago. So I was helped, I helped open the, the Ralph Lauren store there, the one on Michigan Avenue, which is like modeled after the mansion in New York. It's an amazing store.
1: Yeah. I'm and, familiar uh, with the New York uh, mansion, by the way. Yes. Yeah, and so the
0: Chicago one is like a built from scratch, you know, okay. version of that. It's incredible. Yeah. It's like, you know, the artwork alone costs like $7 million literally for the inside of the store. And they opened uh, a restaurant called RL uh, right next door. And this was like, you know, they brought in like Oprah's favorite chef from New York, it's that Nino Esposito. Um, I, you know, I decided to go ahead and get a job there. And, you know, I hadn't I really, I, my first job ever actually was I helped open Gritty's in Freeport. Um, I was a, uh, they hired me, they, I was 15, but they thought I was 27, and they hired me to be a bartender. Uh, literally, I got to like two interviews, and I was telling all my friends as a sophomore in high school, "I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be bartending this summer. It's going to be amazing." And then inevitably, I during bar training, I actually showed up to bar training, and at one point, something came up about ages, and I kind of had to like, you know, raise my hand and be like, "I'm not actually of age yet." And they're like, "Well, how old are you?" I'm like, "Well, I'm almost 16." <laughs> and they were like, "What?" So I had to be a buster and a dishwasher. And then my second, my uh, entire professional kitchen career, as far as in a restaurant lasted two days. Uh, it was at Gritty's. Uh, the second day I let a bunch of silverware get into the new garbage disposal uh, and broke it. And, and I was told I could be a buster. So I just cut some awesome Gritty's chips. Yeah, that was that. Uh-huh. So I hadn't worked in restaurants since then. And working at RL in Chicago. I just immediately fell in love with this lifestyle because coming from like retail, it's like, you know, commission driven retail. So it's aggressive and it's like, you know, the money's good, but yeah. Restaurants, I was like, this is back in, you know, 1999 when we still got cash, you know, like nobody really paid attention to how much you made back then. So you didn't have to really declare, it was just like, I was making so much money there because I was like, and they, and they like, because when you work for the store, they do all these wardrobing sessions where they, they outfit you all these different looks. And then I got all these other like purple label suits and everything for working as a host in the restaurant. So you're like wardrobed and the restaurant itself also like $3 million worth of artwork. Like all the tea lights were like Elsa Peretti, like Tiffany silver ashtrays back when you could smoke in restaurants. And yeah, Ralph Lauren Mm -hmm. people found out about restaurants because all those things were stolen in like a month. Like everybody was like, Oh, Elsa Peretti tea light. This is going right in my purse. (laughs) Like,
1: Oh yeah, I could see that happening. I mean, people oh. steal toilet paper in restaurants out of the employee exactly. bathroom. It's like right. salt and pepper shakers and ketchup and everything you need in your apartment. It comes out of the restaurant. Oh, perfect! And if but, it's here, it wow. must
0: be. I'm a guest, so I must be able to, you know, it must yeah. be mine. Like yeah. actually, I remember once I'm eating at White Barn, and mm-hmm. they have. I don't know if you've eaten at White Barn, but they've got in for it, but they've got these like sculptures on the table that are made of like silver flatware, and they're all like different birds, and. They, you can buy them, but they're like nine or $10,000. But they had a guest literally just assumed that they could just have one. Unbelievable. And like took it and they had to call them, be like, you have to bring that back. They're like, oh, I thought this like, came with my table. Like the sense of entitlement.
1: Yes, that was the word that came to mind. So for those audience members, White Barn Inn is one of these nationally acclaimed restaurants where they have choreographed service where yes. you walk in and every single person that interacts with you is part of the dining experience amazing food amazing wine list amazing ambiance in a historic property and yeah it's a dining experience for sure so thanks for taking us there keep going
0: yeah no then they have that picture window where they're constantly changing the flowers and everything and i mean it's like one of those like the art of service especially since the pandemic Mm -hmm. has really i think been lost like when i get really great service these days it's always like such a shock Mm -hmm. you know but um yeah so the idea of Working in this restaurant, like I would literally work doubles every day because I just loved being there. Like I made so much money. Like they like I'd hang out with the managers after hours and drink really expensive scotch. And it was like the staff meal was amazing. It was like being part of this like new world that was also like a lawless town for me because I was like, the more I kind of apply myself, I can kind of I was like, Oh yeah, I'll be a host and make hourly. I started doing a little cocktailing. I'd like do the coat check and like, you know, it's like mafia guys coming in and giving me like a hundred dollars to get their coat. So I'm like leaving there with like seven, 800 bucks a night. I'm 19 back then. I wasn't supposed was to be a serving ton alcohol. of
1: money. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wasn't even supposed to be serving alcohol because Chicago is mm-hmm. 21. Yep. Um, but again, I always look really old. So nobody ever pays attention, which is fine. But I was hooked at that point, And I started working in uh, restaurants there and nightclubs in Chicago. Um, so I'd be working until, you know, four or five in the morning. And that, you know, sort of gives way to a certain lifestyle. You know what I mean? Uh, And then I kind of settled into these like high-end steakhouse. Basically, it was always like sort of drawing from, for me, restaurants were about, and, and like getting into wine and everything, were based on selling
1: restaurant owners and managers, I call this the business of a thousand details, and you've got more important things to worry about than calculating and paying your monthly sales tax on time. Well, that's where Davo comes in. Davo puts sales tax on autopilot for restaurants. Davo uses sales tax data from your point of sale system to set aside the exact amount of sales tax you collect every single day and then files it and pays it when it's due on time for your restaurant every month. Davo takes just five minutes to set up, and once it's up and running, you never have to worry about paying sales tax again. Davo costs $49.99 per POS connection per month, and your restaurant can try Davo for the first 30 days free. Davo was created by a successful restaurant chef and owner who knows what's important for your operation. Time is money, and you've got more important things to focus on, like pleasing your guests. You can't put a price on peace of mind. Why not try Davo for the first 30 days at DavoSalesTax.com?
0: I was like, the more I know about wine, the more I'm into it, you know, like the, the more I can sell to these tables, the more money I make. It was just like that commission mentality.
1: Thank you for mentioning that because I'm a huge believer in hospitality. I'm a huge believer in exemplary service. And building relationships with the guest. When you're a front of house person, like this is what you're there for. It's like there are so many opportunities in restaurants. And you clearly connected the dots where if I am super knowledgeable, product and restaurant knowledge, I can then suggest things that I know the guest will enjoy. It'll double the check average, it'll put more money in my pocket. And best of all, the guest will have a better experience. You know, we are huge advocates of that. And unfortunately, restaurants today, you I I really want to get into what you said earlier about service is a lost art. So we're going to table that for now because we're still talking about your story. We're going to go there, but service really is a lost art. And I just have to emphasize the fact that so many restaurants now, it is more important than ever to maximize every sale, every person coming into your restaurant, because prices are rising. And, you know, there's so many issues that we're facing post pandemic, as we come out of the pandemic, you know, labor shortages, we have to pay people more money. It's like rising costs of food, supply chain shortages. It's like, you can't afford to miss any sales opportunity. You can't have order takers on the floor and you have to deliver amazing experiences to set yourself apart from the competition. And I've always thought of it, Joe, as, you know, a server, a bartender, anyone you know that's in that position literally has an opportunity to have their own small business within the business. Yeah, and they're almost like
0: renting a space. Thank you. Like, yes. like a stylist rents a chair,
1: right? And and the restaurant owner is taking all the risk. If they own that property, or if they're leasing that space, and they and they're paying the cost of goods, and the payroll, and the insurance, and you know all these things, they're sticking their neck out. And why then wouldn't they? empower and train the staff to recognize opportunity, to suggestive sell, to know the menu inside and out, and to maximize opportunities for that restaurant and for that person. So I'm I'm a huge believer in that. Sorry well, to take you away. On, so.
0: I will touch on all of these elements with you and, and uh, extensively because I'm into it. Yeah. And this was the kind of place that's great because like, you know, this is a, a restaurant called nine steakhouse there used to be one in Vegas. The original one is in Chicago and I worked okay. one in Chicago yep. and it was the kind of place where there's like 13 servers, each server had his own busser. And you know, you're like tipping out like 50%. You know, like busers, polishers, food runners, service bar, there's a separate service bar just for the, the four, but yeah. having your own busser who I like developed a relationship with one in particular, who we always work together and like, I taught him basically essentially to weigh tables. So it's like we just worked in this. And also if I didn't like somebody, I'd be like, you wait on him. I don't want to talk to him anymore. Um, which worked out for me. But it's a kind of restaurant where you know you sell like a big bottle and you do like the the extra, you know, run through the dining room holding the bottle so everybody can see what you sold, kind of rub it's it. Part in of the show, face. entertainment, yeah, like, showbiz. Yep. Exactly. It's like you're you're so that I was just so hooked on that. I mean, and of course I was in my early 20s, so it was like, you know. I was able to not sleep, I guess you could say. And like, really, you know, I was like caught up in this lifestyle. I was definitely partying a lot too. Um, You know, it was like, well, that's that's part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I would, I I had a strong believer in just like making a lot of cash and then putting it all back into the pool after my shift and then starting over the next day. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a blast. And I, I, I got to work with some really amazing chefs and, that was when I started really, because ref- I, I worked in a couple of places that are really strong emphasis on caviar. And I started in with wine and caviar. And all, I started tasting all these things side by side and learning and really enthusiastic about them, you know, being turned on to things like foie gras and, and truffles, all about typical high end stuff, but yeah, also being able yeah. to differentiate between dry aged beef and, and, you know, just different, different cuts and just opening my mind. My, I lived in like you know little vietnam so just going to all those restaurants on that strip on argyle street i would just try everything and anything and i mean my appreciation for it now is my back then it was just like i just like all the different kinds of food now it's more i'm definitely more into it just because over the years but chicago was an amazing experience uh for me in restaurants and then i was out there for about six years and then I came back to, to Maine and started working. I was always front of the house. Uh, I just always looked at it as like I want to make money. Like I don't want I don't want cooking to feel like work and I want to make the most money, and that's just the way it is. And so I would I worked at like Chinquetera uh back in the old I remember in, that place. Yep. Yes.
1: I went uh I had an anniversary dinner with my wife there. It had to be 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, it was it was great back then. It was like, you know, they were doing things like in November, like truffle month where you could get fresh mm-hmm. white truffles yep. shaved on all your entrees. And it was like, yeah. and it was like doing the five courses and, and, but, you know, spending a lot of time explaining to people who would kind of fight you on it and be like, no, I'm just going to order two. And you're like, that's really not a lot of food. I know what you're trying to do. And the whole thing is like, you don't want to be condescending. And we'll talk about that with service. Mm-hmm. When we talk about I, service, but yeah, it's yeah. like, you're also like, I'm doing you a favor. You know, I'm trying to, I know that you're going to see what you ordered. <laughs> it's not seem like a lot of food. I just don't want to, you know, think it's my fault. So yeah, I worked in, and then I started while working in restaurants, um, in 2005, I started working in the wholesale wine business, uh, selling wine to restaurants and stores. So I did that for about 10 years. And I always had my, I would have like two or three restaurant jobs and, you know, two or three days each. I've actually worked in 45 restaurants in my career, which no, span 25 years. Yeah. I retired Whoa. in 2017, but, um, Unbelievable. It, yeah, I just cool code cool. is great because if you work if you work two shifts a week someplace, you're there just enough that you know you're friends with everybody, everybody likes you, but you're not there enough that you have to go to things like staff meetings. Like you don't have to, and if you really don't like it, you can just leave and you have two other jobs. It's like mm-hmm. you just don't have to get so involved in the drama of working at one restaurant full time because I've always thought restaurant years are like cat years where it's like, you know, five one year in a restaurant, it's like five years at another job you know just by the way it feels at least back then it's not that way anymore i don't think as much but um was more that pirate ship mentality you know like and i even work at places like diamond's edge and you know you'd like you're going out there it's like you're taking the one o'clock boat from portland out there and you're coming back on like the 11 o'clock and it's like you're in it it's like male female we're all changing the same place together in the attic everybody it's like, everybody has kind of like their Island girlfriend and boyfriend. Everything that happens on the Island kind of is what it is. Uh, I
1: got something to add to that. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, the restaurant, great diamond, the beautiful experience, right? It, it is an experience because, like you said, you take the ferry from Portland, you land on this island, you walk up the hill, and here's this restaurant, right? So my wife used to be a pharmaceutical sales rep and she used to wine and dine oh, doctor yeah. clients back that. in the day when you and know those you try to sell
0: people to wait on. Yeah. That's
1: that's over now, you know. That whole yeah, industry has changed, but back in the expense account days, so we had this doctor. She had this doctor who had a very nice power boat. It was probably like forty feet long. And so she invites this guy out to dinner and he invites a bunch of people and he's like, oh, why don't we take the boat kind of thing? So we essentially chartered his boat to go from Portland to Die- Great Diamond and all that kind of stuff. So we walk in, we're in this big table. There's probably 15 of us having dinner and they they left it up to me to order the wine and I'm scanning the wine list and we are mostly having seafood. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to order a nice white. And I'm looking down and the only label I recognized was Greg Norman, who was one of my favorite golfers, right? So Greg Norman had a winery. So I ordered the Greg Norman Chardonnay. So the server was this high, no, I'm sorry. He's a college age kid, had a great personality. And he said in front of the table in this nice upscale restaurant, when I ordered the Greg Norman Chardonnay, he, in all honesty, looked at the table and he's like, you know, I wouldn't recommend that wine. The last table that ordered it said, it tasted like cat piss and this is exactly what he said he was totally yeah. honest well we all erupted in laughter and i'm just like that's a memory from that restaurant
0: it's yeah like, and also that uh, cat piss is actually a very commonly used uh flavor description for a lot of white wine so it's there uh, you go you know, he didn't even realize he was on yeah. top of it that place right. was amazing it was like yeah uh you know get a party like that and like the surf and turf was like 80 bucks or yep. something. So you just be like, Oh, I sold everybody a surf and turf. Though. Beautiful. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to sit out a bunch of appetizers while you guys look at the menu and just kind of like,
1: yeah, you could the read bodies. the table and just sort of take them on a journey. I call it the magical experience, right? You take them on the magical journey, you tell them everything about what's great and people just start spending money and ordering stuff.
0: Yeah. It, it. And it's just, and you know that in a lot of times it's like the kind of thing. I mean, Whatever conscious was, but like, yep. put add the gratuity, and then nobody even sees it. And they double tip you on top of that. And You're like, oh, I just made 550 bucks off this one table, and my night's good. I'm <laughs> and you had fun it doing it, right? Oh yeah, but, I mean, working with like-minded people cool to people, wait on. absolutely. Yeah, yeah because nobody's sure. it's just everybody's in it to have a good time, and then you start having a good time because that's the whole. There's nothing worse than when both parties are not having a good time. You aren't. They aren't. And you're just like, what's the point of this? You know, like, wouldn't you be happier at home? I
1: have this mantra. It's like when staff are having more fun and making more money, the guests are having more fun and spending more money, you know?
0: And And that's like this beautiful thing. And there's a certain profile of guests too that I've encountered many times about like, they get like, they get like upset if they see you having more fun with one table than them, like actually upset, like not even being like kidding. Like they, they're like, well, what, why are you talking to us as much? And you're kind of like, I mean, (laughs) like, I, I don't know. I'm trying to help, but yeah. It's just very bizarre to me that you'd be comfortable saying that to somebody, <laughs> let alone, you know, even think it. But um, but anyway, yeah. So I, you know, did, you know, Diamonds Edge, the wine business. I was always working for smaller distributors, mm-hmm. um, kind of actually being part of the beginning of a few of them. So getting to really see what it's like to build a portfolio and work with suppliers and have all the free wine you could drink, literally nice. just never ending ocean of wine. And um, yeah. and that coupled with the restaurant business, I mean, I, I was also a buyer for a retail store. And so that was all like my career. Then we started doing these deathmatch parties back in 2007, which were, um, I lived with this guy, John Dietz, and that were over on Ocean Avenue. And there was these huge dinner parties, essentially revolving around a theme. The first one was foie gras. And it was like 10 chefs, 10 courses of foie gras, 30 people. And they eventually evolved into like The last one's theme was like the last meal on earth. And it was like 80 people, 16 chefs, like, and these got on, we got got on like Andrew Zimmern show. Like they caught the attention of Anthony Bourdain. Like we started getting a lot of national press for these things. Uh And that was what kind of, I started writing in 2009. Okay. Uh, I started my blog, uh, Portland Food Coma, um, based on, I was like all these, I was basically like, if any of these things kill me, I want to have a story to leave behind because this is getting pretty excessive. So it was all based around excess and, and consumption and, but hedonism. (laughs) Yes. Hedonism. And it, uh, it took off. And that was in March that I started that blog. Mm. And in August I was approached by uh, Susan Grisanti Mm -hmm. from main magazine.
1: I know Susan. Yep.
0: Uh, Yep. Uh, Susan Kelly back then. And she uh, offered me a job. Like, so I, I just kind of, I started this blog and then now I have this professional writing gig just based on that. It was really wild. And I, and I just started, you know, I did main magazine for a while. I was doing my own thing still. Um, I started my show food Coma TV in 2011, uh, We sort of took the the blog to a video format. And we had, you know, we've got Anthony Bourdain on that with Eric repair at one point uh, as guests on that show it went really well. And <clears throat> I wrote for a food editor for Down East magazine for, four or five years, Main magazine was five years. Uh-huh. I actually worked for Susan again for a year at Decor Maine writing food stuff. I freelance for Bon Appetit and The Guardian and the Brits Carlton and Lark Hotel group and
1: just, it's been a fun you know. ride, it sounds like yeah. and it's not yeah. over yet. Yeah.
0: No, it's uh, it's <laughs> just entering you know, I just got into my forties. So you know.
1: So what's your favorite food that you cook for yourself when you're not working? And what's your favorite food you want someone else to cook for you? Get big flavor without the labor with Smokin' Fast from Smithfield. It's fully cooked or smoked proteins, including American barbecue staples and global flavors. Everything from ribs to pulled chicken to brisket and barbacoa, all are authentically slow cooked to perfection. It's so delicious your guests will never know it wasn't smoked right in your own kitchen. Now you can add barbecue to your menu without adding a pit master to your payroll. Visit smithfieldculinary.com.
0: Uh, my favorite food to cook for myself. Uh, I think definitely Mapo tofu is up there. So it's kind of uh-huh. Chinese tofu uh, yeah. and meat dish. And just, I love making any kind of like one pot, like rice dishes, you know, something I can just take vegetables, toast the rice, add some kind of sausage or whatever. add really good stock. You know, and okay, it's my cat is you know.
1: You know, it's funny cat. because I lock my cat out of the studio because yeah. it likes to do the same thing. It's yeah, black cat sits right behind me all the time. Yeah. But you yes. know what? It would have been colorful if I let my cat in on this episode because we'd both have cat mascots <laughs> yeah. on our chair. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: My my mistake. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Tony I love cat doesn't.
0: Tend to get in the way of the audio, right? Tony, you're going to be quiet. Okay, good. No wow. worries. Leave the cat there. It's <laughs> yeah, adding color are,
1: to the to the show. So, the lo- perch, I yeah. see you got multiple cats running around.
0: Uh, just this one, but runs around a lot.
1: Oh, I thought I saw a gray tiger running back and no, forth. No, that's this, this
0: is... orange tiger. That I oh. think is a blur of tiger.
1: That makes sense. Okay, it's caught in the light. All right, keep going.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Killer. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like to make those kind of foods myself. As far as yep. food, I like other people to make for me. I mean there's really anything better than when somebody makes you a grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, it just tastes different than when you make it for yourself. I don't know yeah. what it is.
1: Good old American comfort food. It goes back to childhood, right?
0: Yeah. That's what I want. When I want, I want to like go into somebody's kitchen and it smells like tomato sauce and olive oil and like onions being cooked in olive oil. you know, like that kind mm-hmm. of just warmth of like, even like those old school, quote unquote, like family Italian restaurants that don't really exist anymore here. I don't think, but just the, there's just such a warmth to them. Right. You know, and,
1: yeah, the Chianti bottles on the table with the wax dripping down with out fiasco, of the candle. The <laughs> straw on the Chianti red and white striped tablecloth.
0: Yeah, straight out I'm of th- a Billy Joel song. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Or a little Sinatra thrown in. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So you dine out regularly as well. Now, some of this has been on assignment because obviously you're a food and travel writer. We talked yeah. a lot about the assignments that you've had. Now when you dine out now, uh, what attracts you to a restaurant? What makes you select a restaurant? Obviously, you travel the state of Maine. You find obscure restaurants. You find famous restaurants, well-known ones, whatever. Portland, I don't need to mention Portland because we've talked about it a bunch. But as a food city, they say Portland like ranks second per capita number of restaurants. But it's a real food city. Like They've compared it to San Francisco. And and yeah. your best to talk about that, of course. The food scene in Portland has exploded along with the craft beer scene, along with distilleries, along with, I mean, it is a real food, wine, and cocktail paradise if you come to Portland, Maine, right?
0: It is. And people tend to they, they come here and they definitely fall in love with it and its turned yeah. state. It's changed a lot. Uh, not all for the best. I mean, some of it has definitely become a little hyped up, but it's just when you look at the buildup, um, I mean, you asked what restaurant, what makes me want to go to a restaurant. Yeah, it's please crazy. answer. It's, it's consistency. Uh-huh. Uh, just knowing that every time I'm going to have the same experience. Like, I mean, I, when I was working, when I was writing, I was going to a lot of different places. Um, but on my own, I really, there's like three restaurants I go to in like rotations, like Judy Gibson, Coles, and uh, Tan Tan, the Vietnamese place up the street for me. It's like, I'm okay. definitely a creature of habit. Yeah. Uh, when it, I just like to know, I know exactly what I want. I'm the kind of person that goes to a restaurant and like looks at the menu online beforehand or decides what they want to order before they yep. even get there unless there are specials. But like, I just don't, I mean, I think it's also my just aging process. It's like, I don't get that excited about, you know, being out. And I certainly don't care about trying new like places when they're new. Like I'll usually go there like seven, eight, nine months after they've opened. Uh, I'm not the guy there on opening night. And, and when I am, it's like, back in the day when I, people would invite me to like, you know, friends and family soft opening. And it's just like, that's really generous. But I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter whether I'm paying for food or whatever. It's just like my impression of the food, if it's not that great that night, I'm not going to come back for a long time just because I'm just going to have that connotation. You know, it's like, I want to try it when you've had some time to like work things out and, you know run smoothly and you kind of get the menu locked down rather than the first night where I mean everything goes wrong the first night that's just the way it is yeah and that's fine but you i don't to-, to be there
1: <laughs> we had a soft opening for a Mexican place. I opened a decade ago and everything went wrong and there were avocado pits in the guacamole. Like yeah. what the heck is going yeah. on here? And you if you know? eat
0: an avocado pit in a guacamole, like even if your best friend knows the restaurant, you're going to be wary of ordering the guacamole ever yeah. again there. Yeah. You know? Just, you can't help it because right. you just like, you have that memory yep. of being like, what is this? <laughs> What's happening here?
1: The show must go on though, you know. Again, it yeah. is show business, so the show oh, must it, go on and,
0: and it's like and make yes, it light. it's like do I am I like oh that's I don't judge people for their mistakes, but I also just can't help what I feel about certain, you know, if I have there have been restaurants that I've gone to because I've known the people that owned it, uh opened them and I went to yeah. the first night and I've had certain foods that I was just like I don't know, this is so wrong that I don't think I'm going to come back here, you know. And it's like I really wish I just waited well,
1: so with ahead. that in mind, um, I've always believed there are three important attributes to any successful restaurant, not in any order, but food, service, and ambiance, right? That's a simple yeah. thing. If you were to pick one, what's most important to you?
0: You know, it's changed over the years. I, I think there was a time that I would have said food. Yeah. But that's just not the case anymore because there's some places that, like, I'm so over it with the service there that even if I love the food, I will not go back. Like, and to, to me, it's almost to the point now where ambiance and service are sort of combined in a way because the service creates the ambiance for me. Um, Cause you know, unless you're talking like a really high end place where it's like, there's a lot going into the design and the, and the flow, like for your average sort of everyday restaurant, like the service is part of the ambience. So, yep. you know, that's why I go to a place like Coles or, or Judy Gibson, for instance, it's like, I know every time it's like, staff's a certain way. Everybody's cool. It's not like, it's just, re- I want to feel relaxed when I go out, you know, and I want to know, that I'm going to get something delicious.
1: Do people treat you differently? Because again, you're a personality, especially in the state of Maine, you're easily recognizable. You walk into a restaurant, everybody has seen you on TV. They know who you are. Do they treat you like you're a celebrity? Do they just see you like any other guest? I mean, do they give you special treatment? How does that work? Does it vary in restaurants?
0: It, it can vary. I mean, it definitely yeah. happens. I mean, yeah. And honestly, I mean, Sometimes like I get kind of a, I definitely get like social anxiety. Like, I'm actually really shy. I think a lot of people think I'm really gregarious, but like,
1: we'd never know that.
0: Yeah. No, I'm actually really shy when it comes down to it. And so I, I will actually avoid going to a place because I don't want to talk to people or run into anybody I know. And I'll just go to a place where I'm like, Oh, I, I go enough. That's not a big deal that I'm there, you know, which is just, that's something going on in my own head. But I do, I do. I mean, it's like, I obviously like to be recognized and say hi to everybody. Like, I don't want to, but it's like, I don't ever, well, I certainly never expect special treatment at all. Uh, When I get it, it's, it's wonderful and it's always appreciated. But I mean, if I like, again, that's the kind of thing, if I wanted to, you know, I love Anestis and Portland food map. And if I wanted to to read that and always be at the openings and, and all these events and stuff, like, yes, I'm sure I could get a lot of attention, but that's just not what I want anymore.
1: (laughs) So we're going to get into service as a lost art, but the point that you just sort of triggered in my mind is it's that cheers formula. People want to go where everyone knows their name, right? And that means that as an owner, a general manager, you really have to touch every customer in a personal way and make them feel like they're the most important customer. You need to touch new customers as if they're a regular or they've uh, an old friend. You know, That was always my philosophy running restaurants. It's like, It was not uncommon if I had, you know, 15 servers on the floor and eight bussers and I had a lot of employees in my biggest restaurant, but I made it a point to train people that if any guest crosses your path, you thank them for coming in. So if you were a guest in my restaurant, it was not uncommon for you to get up and go to the bathroom and be thanked by eight people on the way to the bathroom. And when you got up to leave, you were thanked by 12 people on the way out the door. You were, you felt special, like, you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm sure, you know, that happens to you. Let's talk about service as a lost art, because if you were to go back the 40s, the 50s, the golden age of restaurants, there were maitre d's that knew everybody greeted you at the door, would seat you at your favorite table, would pull the chair out for the lady, all that, you know, take care of that. Um, You'd go to a gas station, they'd check your oil, they'd wash your windshield, you know, all that kind of stuff. None of this happens anymore in this this industry, in this business, in this economy. So where did it all go? And granted pandemic threw things sideways, but even before the pandemic, service is a lost art. Like why didn't the restaurant industry as a whole embrace the fact that hospitality hospitality is absent when something happens to you, hospitality is present when something happens for you. And that's the most basic thing in this business. But what happened? Like why well, is it why decades change and millennials are now working in restaurants and you know, it's like tell tell me what your thoughts are on that. I'll shut I think it
0: up now. Uh, like, please not I uh, I think that well, a I will say I think the blame lies on both sides of the okay. of the table. I yeah. think that you know I think it's a lot harder to be really hospitable when people are being really aggressive about things like masks and and whatnot. Sure, and setting the tone right from the beginning, holding yep. things against you, you're less likely to really give those people an amazing experience if they if you're already sensing um, you know. Attitude or aggression, or you know, it's just sure. I think, and I don't, and I also think that there's a lot of people in the world now that just they don't even appreciate. Like, you could go all out all out for somebody, like, the more you give them, it's almost like give an inch, take a mile. They're just like very entitled, and it's like they don't necessarily appreciate the service experience, but they're the first ones to like write a Yelp review of like one thing. If there's one thing they don't like the color of your tie or whatever. It's like they're, you know, the Yelp yeah. has changed a lot of that, like, the the the, everybody's a critic, you know, everybody feels that their opinion is extremely valid and it's just not, I mean,
1: it's well, valid that's- to them. That's an interesting perspective because the internet has both been a blessing and a curse for restaurants. Because on one side, you can promote the hell out of your restaurant for very little or no money at all. Social media has become huge. So it's a benefit to restaurants. But then, like you say, everybody's suddenly a food critic and the customer is always right in their mind. And suddenly you get slammed for something that you didn't do. Wasn't your fault. Wasn't a realistic truth story. And now your restaurant reviews plunge and it it all is based on reviews. It's like, whenever you're going to go out to eat, you look at the phone, you look at the reviews, you look at the menu, and that's how you decide in so many cases where you're going to go. And, and in the
0: forties and fifties, you know? like nobody in the forties and fifties, customers couldn't anonymously attack you nope. in public. Just like, word of mouth. Having an experience. They're friends. Yeah, Don't go to exactly. that
1: place. Cause
0: <laughs> right. It's all word of mouth. And, it's, yeah. it's, and I think that now the service that it's almost like you have to go to, it has to, you have to spend a lot of money. Uh, and go to a high end place. Not even necessarily in, in Portland. I mean, in Portland, and that's always been the case. Like I've never there's never been a place in Portland, for instance, that's on the level of like White Barn, or on the level of like and Like when you go to like the really high end places, sure yeah, um, where you really just like they make you feel like you like you know like you go to like Per Se and they like Google you before you go, no matter who you are, and like know a little thing about you when you show up. Like that kind of stuff is like it's mind blowing and it's amazing and it's memorable, but I feel like a lot of places in Portland are they're expensive, but it doesn't necessarily translate into into service. And it's really because I mean nobody, it's not it's nobody's really trained, but nobody really even cares, I don't think. Like, I agree. Nobody and I can't think of a Portland restaurant with a staff who wants to know anything about French service or anything about or anybody knows how to fillet a fish table side or or anything, you know, or sell a bottle of wine properly, or you know, you get people come over, plonk it on the table, open it on the table like. It just feels very like like you can order like you know a really nice bottle of shatnuf to pop and be treated the same as if you ordered a bottle of like yellowtail shiraz. It's just like like nobody really like nobody offers to can things. Like I
1: know it's so it's just, true. It's just
0: the whole once you lose, you start losing the elements. Yeah, it's like then it feels really piecemeal because the whole thing has, as you said, it's a show. It has to flow as one big thing, and when you start subtracting all these elements, you just lose the whole. I mean, people can be nice and that's great. And they aren't always nice. Sometimes you get that people wait on you and they treat you like it's your privilege to have, to be there and have, which is like, yeah, I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody, but it's also like, no, that doesn't work that way either. Like I don't have to be extra sensitive because you came into work. Like we're all doing this. I'm eating here. You're working here. It's not rocket science. Also, (laughs) I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I was a really great server. Uh, One thing I will say that if you are going to give attitude to people, which I certainly have in my lifetime, plenty, uh, you have to not make mistakes. If you're going to be that kind of personality, then you better be flawless and you better not give somebody a reason, an actual reason to, uh, to prove you wrong. And then you look extra stupid, but it's just, uh, I don't know. Uh, All the last few years, I mean, it's been a little while since I've worked in a high end place. Uh, I've worked in plenty of them, but, it's just, I don't know. I think it's, it, the personal element is definitely there, but you just, you don't ever go to a place and you're like, wow, like all my needs were like anticipated, you know? I think one of the last places that did that really well was Back Bay Grill. Yeah. Um, and they're, yeah. they're gone now, um, but they had a good run for sure. But like the, the importance of a really good Matri Adrian, there, like a man facilitating dining room. Everybody who like, people who care, like who want to be there, who want to be better at their job, who like are part of the team. And it, as a result, you know, they're going to make money. I'm not saying you should, it's not a charity, but like, I don't know. So people is just like, well, I just show up and I make my money and I leave. And if I don't like that now, it's like there's five other places I could just go work and whatever.
1: Anticipate you know. needs. That jumps out at me because... Okay. So here's, um, here's something for restaurant owners and managers to really think about and ponder. And it's a paradigm shift because most restaurants anywhere have delineated job positions, your front of house. Okay. You got a host and they greet people at the door and they give them a menu and they walk them into the table and they seat them in that kind of thing. And then the bussers obviously clear the tables and reset the tables and wipe the tables. And then the servers obviously take the orders, deliver the food, bring the check and the bartenders make the drinks. That's a typical full serve restaurant, right? Exactly. So we cross-trained our staff and we trained them all in product and restaurant knowledge so that literally a server could be a bartender and a host could be a busser and a busser could be a host. And they were all trained so that, and in the point of sale system. So we had choreographed service where anyone could back anyone else up. And we had this sort of rule where well, in the weeds is a common term in this business. When servers suddenly get out of control, then they don't have time to engage their tables and interact with them and sell them things. They're just surviving, you know, and people yeah. are always looking for them, but everyone is in a section at a given time, a host, a bus, or a server. They're all in the, sec- in the sections, therefore Keep your eyes open, anticipate needs. Notice that the lady's glass of wine is almost empty. Notice that someone dropped their fork on the floor. Every table is your table and everyone is part of that service oriented team. And if everyone was trained in product knowledge and everyone is trained to sell, it was not uncommon for a busser to notice that the glass of wine is empty and ask the lady, did you enjoy that glass of wine? Would you like another? Or is there something else that you might like better that pairs with whatever? And the person was so well-trained that could go to the point of sale system and make the sale while the server was in the kitchen getting someone else's food. It was like choreographed service, right?
0: As it should be. And it's like, and yeah. it's funny. Once it starts going wrong, it's like a chain reaction. It's like right. when, when all the bad service, because A, it's like, okay, you come in, the host is very inexperienced doesn't understand what he or she is doing so if they go and they triple seat one of the servers when none of the other servers have tables so you get this one server running around um, everybody else like it's nothing worse than not, not being able to find your server and having all these other servers just staring at you and you're like i mean what i know that we're not specifically telling you know most places probably cool now anyway but it's like pool uh, tips but it's like yep you know that's just that whole mentality, not my service, not my job or not my section, not my job, not my responsibility. I'm only have to be aware of my tables. Cause that's what I was, you know, that's just what is supposed to happen. And then it's like, and then you gotta, you know, and then it's like, all of a sudden the kitchen's like having a problem because one server is so busy and then they're, they, they're firing everything erratically or they, you know, they're, they're piling on one station and it's just like the whole thing. And yet there's all these people, there's all this set of hands that are doing nothing. To prevent or make any of this to ease this transition at all, and it's just like, and like I said, it starts from the minute people get sad in the way that you want. And like as a surfer, sometimes I have to resist the urge to go scream at the host. Like, what are you doing? Like, look at the seating chart. Like, wh- why? Why do I have four tables and everybody else has one right now? That you gave me like at once, and they just that you're in the headlights. So much. There's so much deer in the headlights in the front of the house these days. Mm-hmm. It's like. Yeah, I mean, you, you just feel like you like you order, you use the term order taker, or yeah, clerking earlier. It's, it's just a huge
1: like, pet peeve of mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just the, the hey, yeah, what's like, so how are you guys doing? Like, how, how are, how is everything
1: exactly? Like, Can I get you anything else?
0: Yeah, you know, and it's, yeah, that's, and that's it. And it's like, and you were talking earlier about, you know, talking about service, and it's like back when I did it, when I worked in, the, in those places, it's like, yeah, it, Yes. The, it, the, the experience could end after they finished their last entree or whatever, or I could sell them five, $20 glasses of dessert wine that they could have while I get, you know, sell them all desserts. And then I sell them all cappuccino. They ask for coffees, but I sell them all like $5 Americanos instead of $2 coffees, you know, and then I've added like $120 onto my, onto my check average or onto my check. Yep. When a lot of people, servers just be like, well, okay, can I get you guys anything else? Like, it's like also the term you guys, I just, it's like fingering right. the
1: I know, right? I know. You guys,
0: so you guys look at it, it's just <laughs> like, yeah, it's fine when you and like interacting with people, but it's just like at a table, it's like, what? <laughs> you can't think of any way to speak more eloquently than, than that. Like, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't eat, anger me anymore because I just gave up on it. I'm just like, whatever, I'm going to eat my food. And if I need something, I'm going to express that need and. I'm not like you know. What do you like? I'm not like I don't drink anymore. But I I was like when I did, it's like I'm not going to ask for help with wine lists because chances are, if if, you know if they know any wine at all, it's the one that maybe they featured this week because the rep came in and talked about it, they know about. But it's like nobody has like a nobody has a mastery of the whole wine list. Yep. Um, and and sometimes if they do, it goes the other way where they like almost get very arrogant with it, and it's so esoteric that you want to be like you know. You're spending a lot more time at the table trying to explain to somebody why they can't have a California Chardonnay. When, if really you just put one on the menu, is it going to kill you? And then you don't have to have this dialogue with the one person who's uncomfortable that you want to sell Viognier or Muscadet Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's like you sell the wine people those wines, but you have to have something. It's like, whatever, have Budweiser. Just because, so the one person at your tent, maybe nine of them want to drink like, you know, Tilquin or, you know, sour beers. But maybe one person wants a bud and Just why do they have to be uncomfortable? Just let them have their bud while everybody else has their things. It's like, why do you have to have this confrontation unnecessarily and make them feel stupid? And then they get defensive. And once people start getting defensive, it's I just know. like-
1: that's know, uh, things go out the window. You know, yeah. another interesting point. We had a mantra where we talked about Having a strategy, having a game plan before you approach the tables and knowing when to sell and when not to sell. So the mantra was, you know. Another table turn beats dessert and coffee because we, in some restaurants, you know, people come in, they take up a table for an hour and a half, two hours, and they're just sipping their coffee right. while there's a line out the door and, yeah. and the restaurant is losing money. The staff is losing money. So it's like, read okay, the table. you know what I mean? Read the tables. Thank you. So that's
0: a round of like Chateau Akem. Yeah. Let's let them camp out for a little bit. If they're going to keep, you know, but it's, yeah, yeah if they're just yeah. having a sank up. <laughs> then like maybe it's time for them to go. Maybe they go to their Sanka at home. Like yeah. yeah, it's real estate. It's 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 Thank your, you Yep. It's your real estate in your section. Yes. You're an independent contractor. I mean it doesn't feel I mean there's so many things about it now. It's not because I can't you, can't you can't put the blame of any of this on any one aspect of the you know the servers, the customers, the kitchen because it's all there's things in all of them. I mean even the whole concept of like everybody being like well you have to tip out the kitchen all this money now. It's like at my mentality was oh, right. like, well, you know what? That's your job. See, I work for tips, so you don't have to pay me, but you have to pay the kitchen. Like that's why you don't have to pay me. So you just pay them. I don't want to pay them. Like how come I have to pay them now? Because it's that whole I hate that mentality. And people are like, you make too much money. It's like that's not really your any your business. Like you it's right. too much and too little. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like I'll let you know what I make too much money, which will be never.
1: But that that was always a sticking point in restaurants too. We always told people. It's no one else's business how much money you made. And we'd have server,
0: a server, a bartender walks
1: on a Saturday with a thousand dollars in their pocket. Meanwhile, the line cooks that are making back then 15 bucks an hour under 900 degree kitchens for like 10 hours on their feet. There's a disparity there. And it's like, you don't want to like throw that in their face, you know? Right. And, and that happens in a lot of restaurants. And, and then I'm, I'm also sure you've seen the conflict between front of house and back in house in certain restaurants where uh, a staff person has a problem because a customer's meal was undercooked or overcooked and something needs to be redone. And then they go, they approach the line and now the tickets are on the floor and those guys are like sweating. And it's like, they're just trying to get through the night and excuse me, uh, this isn't right. And I need a blah, blah, blah. I have and no idea how to
0: communicate. You know what I mean? That's else. yeah. There's no, a certain no. way to say that, and I think the key sometimes is you have to work. And if you, I've worked in it for a few chefs who are screamers. Yeah. So you walk on oh. eggshells in those kitchens, yep. and you we learn had a few of those <laughs> fear. Um, these are people that literally, like, I've had, the, I've worked for people that have been able to make me cry. Uh, they're just so brutal, but it, I like that. Like, I think that makes you better. I that agree. would never fly anymore. But like, I enjoyed being afraid. And it made me do things. It made me think about what I said, rather than just barging in and being like, like, I have to be like, okay, I'm going to wait here quietly for somebody to acknowledge me. Then I have to respectfully tell them what's going on. And you, and you can expect the same thing from them too. It's like, you know, if you have something to say to me, don't, don't just randomly scream at me as I'm walking by. We have, the communication has to go both ways. It does. Yeah. And the teamwork just, yeah. can't
1: be forgotten. You know, it's right. not about this team working on its own in a bubble it's like okay front of house back of house we got the end result is you got to please the guest and the customer needs a great experience whatever that takes you know yeah. whatever it takes that's everyone should approach their job leave your problem everybody's problems
0: very arm. me me oriented yeah which, I think. for sure
1: that's, for sure
0: and it's that's just the nature of the world the social media and everything is very narcissistic and I'm the center of attention. If I'm not happy, nobody's going to be happy and you should care if I'm happy and you should care if this offends me because my feelings are the most important thing in the world. Like that's how everybody feels now. And that had no place in late nineties restaurants, Mm-mm. that mentality, you didn't last very long if you were of that uh, uh, mentality, you know, like, and, I, and again, it's like, that's why I don't do it anymore rather than fight it and try to like work in a restaurant to show them how it used to be. I just, I left them. Yeah. And I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to be part of the restaurant world now. You know, I have no interest.
1: Well, you've had forty-five restaurants over twenty-five yes, years. Seen you've a lot of your dues. You've seen it all. Uh, what's the most craziest experience that that ever happened while working in a restaurant for you? Um, Can you recall I've any seen, really just just I can't believe this is happening moments?
0: <laughs> yeah, a whole bunch of them. Uh, sometimes whole portions of my careers are places. I uh, you know. The things, I mean, they're all, I mean, they all involve in a lot of drugs now, so I don't have to get into a lot of detail. Right, I mean, there's, no like, there's been a lot of, inter- I mean, I don't mind talking about it either, but yeah. a lot of interactions with customers and getting crazy with them and getting, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like the. Uh, <laughs> that was the kind of thing i had to think about in advance because i'm like i'm sure the minute that we stop talking i'll be like, oh, we're thinking 10 things that are like yeah. there's been a lot of a lot of crazy things that that's why i again why i'm so drawn to the, the was so drawn to the business was the unpredictability of the pirate ship and you know you're at the mercy of so many factors and you know like and it's like you take the whole thing and then no matter how well you think you orchestrate it, like people's personalities can throw that all off. Like the customers come in and if they're a certain way, how you want it to go, it's not going to go that way. So it's like, you got to be able to pivot and be comfortable pivoting rather than fighting the tide, you know? But as far as crazy things, it was just, let's just assume there was always a lot of times they involved me being really drunk. So <laughs>
1: 1997, if you were to go back to 1997, oh God, I, I opened a new steakhouse. News. Okay. And this was not opening night, but it was a couple nights after we opened this place. And the very first thing that happened was the POS system crashed. I had a full dining room. And back then it wasn't easy to troubleshoot a POS system. And so orders got double-ordered and the tickets got spit out twice and duplicated orders. And customers waited an hour and a half for food that never came. And people got up and walked out without paying. And you know, all this is happening. We used to have these big family-style tables where, okay, sure, you could put a 14 top there if it was a party or something, but you could also put two here and four in the middle and six on the end, and they'd be all unrelated, and we thought it was family-style dining. That was great. So we had a full table of 14, and the ambiance was, it was kind of this rustic steakhouse and Maine, being what it is, we had this giant stuffed moose head on the wall, you know? Where was the steakhouse? Uh, I was up at Sunday River Ski Resort. It was called the Great Grizzly Bar and Steakhouse. So this moose was literally right over the big table and somehow it let go. It fell off the wall and landed in the middle of this 14 top and the food and the plates got broken and the wine went flying and people got food on their clothes. And here's this, you know, the big antlers are like right on the table thank God it didn't hit anybody. Cause that could have been a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yes. So the next thing that happens is one of the guests somehow locked their keys in the car. And so one, you know, we called AAA for them and they waited like an hour for AAA to get there. And then AAA shows up and they go to open the door with one of those slim Jim things. And the right. guy looks at, it, and he's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This car has side impact airbags. And if I do that, it's going to really? explode and blah, blah, oh, blah. Yeah. So the guy can't, he's from Boston, he's three hours away, his keys are locked in the car, he can't get in the car, it's like 10 o'clock at night, he gets so angry, there's a beer bottle in the parking lot, he picks (sighs) it up and he just throws it across the parking lot, it ends up smashing the windshield of one of my server's cars, and then there was a bar fight that Was There was a famous defensive lineman from the the Patriots, you know, and this person, we didn't have a coat room back then, and there was a pinball machine, and in the bar, people just stacked their coats up kind of thing on on the pinball machine, and there was one of our customers that was rifling through the coats and stole this Patriot's wallet, and the guy caught him. And that guy opened up this customer's face right in the middle of the dining room. and It was just carnage, right? So that person had to go to the emergency room and all this stuff is going down in the very same night. And I'm thinking to myself, how are we possibly going to deal with this and how are we going to get through the night? And that's the restaurant business, right? The (sighs) unexpected is around the corner. The dishwasher is going to break down. You can't wash the dishes. Board of Health is going to come in, close you down. It's like, wow. And this is what we deal with. Yeah. So well
0: orchestrated, it's hopefully well orchestrated circus and that. Yeah. That kind of thing. I mean, just nuts. It, you never know. And it's funny. I thought of another, like the thing about and people just view like the, from a customer perspective, they view restaurants. It's a different thing. Like when do you ever go to like a bank or a library or, and they're not open yet? And you're like, well, can I come inside and sit? people do that they're like yeah we're not open yet like okay i'm just gonna sit here while you wait it's like no this is my time like when we're open yes you can come in and sit like people just think because it's a restaurant they're just entitled to like well we have to where are we supposed to go and it's like well if the other stores are closed is that what you say to like hannaford Like, well you're not open yet where am i supposed to go like can i just come in and like like why is it different in a restaurant that you feel the need that i'm supposed to accommodate this it's just like that mentality it's like everything changes it's true and it's uh it's amazing. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. You know? let's talk about my seventies kitchen. What's that all uh, about? Yeah, so my seventies kitchen. So I, when I up, I live in Portland now, but for five years I was living in Yarmouth uh, up until last year, and um, that I had. So my my director producer Chris Lochran, does all the filming, recording, and everything that I do. Uh, we've worked together since we met Boston back in 2013, and he was always like. Cause I was, he's always like, I want to shoot a cooking show. I want to do like, it's called a stand and stir, uh, is this the format when you do like your average cooking show? Mm-hmm. And he's always like, well, What you get? And I'm always like, I'm yeah, my kitchen's stupid. It's like, you know, it's stupid. Finally, one day, because he was living in Salem at the time, he was in Maine now, he was like, Can you just send me a picture of your kitchen? And so I sent it to him, and he's like, Oh my God, he's like, We're just going to get this steel, steel table, we're going to get burners and put it on that. And so he's like, I'll, I'll, so he basically sent his kitchen up into like a TV studio and i started and i basically just started calling it 70s kitchen the first day because it's so like wood panels like yeah, form- you know, like the formica countertops like it's <laughs> yeah you know i just embraced it you know because it's just a typical like old apartment kitchen and then it just yeah it just made sense to to really have that be the theme because i mean it was it was <laughs> it was really funny and, and it was like and doing the show for the first time and learning a lot about it even little things like oh we filmed the whole segment. I didn't realize that I still had like the dish soap was on top of the sink behind me with like the sponge, like things like that. You don't, you know, if they're going to professional set, you don't see these little minutia things, but like, but it works for the cat showing up or, you know, yep. Like, yep. whatever. Yep. And we just kind of, we went with, it, and, with uh, it. Yep. Yeah. I think, I think it worked. I think we still have two episodes to release of that one mm-hmm. with, um, Krista Desjardins from purple house uh, we, do, we so we oh, had, yeah, for the, the purple. final two episodes, we did like a 70s theme. So we did Baked Alaska with her, and then Jordan, uh, Ruben, Mr. Tuna, we did California rolls with him. Yeah, so we wanted to keep like it. the retro thing. So those two are, have yet to be released, and then we're going to. My new kitchen, he says we're gonna film here, so we'll see. I don't know.
1: <laughs> so fun. So fun. Yeah. So what's next for Joe Riccio? What do you see down the road?
0: Uh, well, I think that you know, we're I'm still just kind of I, I wanna say throwing things to the wall. It's not quite that random, but it's mm-hmm. like I'm still just learning. Like for instance, I just got back last weekend, we were in Miami shooting. Uh I do a our more extensive travel show is called The Hell Out of Dodge. We did the Aragosta episodes, the one you know, these like man. half hour episodes, which is like yeah. I mean, for two people to produce a half hour episode, to me, it takes us usually you have like 10 people on that endeavor, you know. So we just shot in Miami last weekend and we were focusing on like neighborhoody places and Love it. fish yeah. out of water with uh-huh. me. And yeah, but it's just like I'm still learning about what works for me. Like when you watch a lot of the other shows that I like, everybody has a kind of a, a style that they fall into that's that's comfortable for them. And like I feel like I'm still always kind of working towards finding that like perfect formula, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like getting used to, especially going to a place like Miami, where you don't know anybody. Like we had like a fixer who like fell through and we had like another guy who was great, but he wasn't there the whole time. So it's like going around with a big camera and even like filming in restaurants and having to do things like ask them to turn the music down or off. I and mean, even though they're hosting you, it's like, now like, like everybody's just staring at you. you always have that, that suspicion that everybody's looking at you. And usually it's not true, but when you have yeah. a big camera, oh yeah of course looking at you yep yep. especially like the music goes off and they're like why is the music off and it's like god like just like trying to give a good show and utilize your personality while you're so goddamn embarrassed just like just just you just want to crawl under a rock somewhere but you're like okay i gotta do this i have to do it i'm here that's what it is so
1: and this is fantastic. You know, Joe, you've been such a great guest and you've provided so many nuggets of information. You've taken us on a fun ride of your 25 plus year journey at 45 restaurants, plus, you know, the TV personality thing and the food and travel writing. You're a truly passionate food guy, and we've been super happy to have you on the on the podcast. Well,
0: it has been a pleasure. Thank you. I can't believe the time's already gone by. That was, didn't time just fly? I think we been go for five minutes.
1: We could go for two hours, <laughs> but we try to keep <laughs> it <laughs> to could. an hour. Yeah. Well, thanks so much to our audience for tuning in. That again is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. We'll see everyone in the next episode. Stay with us. Thanks again, Joe, for being on the show and being a great guest. You're certainly a big personality leading a colorful life. Thanks for sharing your adventures with us. Let's talk about profit, restaurant profit specifically. These are crazy times, of course, and prices are rising and things are just nuts in an already low margin business. I don't need to tell anyone that. So, what do you have to do? You literally have to maximize every sale coming through the door and, more importantly, maximize profit on every sale. Well, how do you do that? I'm giving away three ways you are killing your restaurant's profits. Absolutely free at restaurantrockstars.com plus a restaurant assessment, thought-provoking questions that'll lead you through, are you doing this? Have you thought about that? And these are all uh, designed to make your restaurant more efficient, more productive, and more profitable. It's free. It's at restaurantrockstars.com. I want to thank this week's episode sponsors, Devo, Pop Menu, Smithfield Culinary, and serve. Thanks again. We'll see you guys all in the next episode. Stay tuned.
0: Thanks for listening to the The Restaurant Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.